just around the corner from this podcast, your favorite Indian restaurant. But before you do that, listen to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. Which is good to know. Yeah. Because otherwise I'll be talking to your doppelganger. We should have used that when we did um, Body Snatchers. <laughs> hey, we should also do the film uh, Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, also known as Doppelganger. I think we've got that. Yeah, I've got that. Well, I think I have. I'm just going to add it again and then I'll scout through the list of 500 <laughs> films that we've got. So you're on a roll. I think you're still pumping adrenaline from... Um, last night's tv extravaganza yes uh, i mean i've had a i've had a busy week at work we're working a load of day shifts on the run and yesterday i was up at like 5 a.m to get ready for me day shift worked a day shift then came home and then stayed awake because it was that time of year again wasn't it it was your division i love your division it's moved away in the past decade and a half from being the the cheesy campish exercise that it was known for to being quite a good showcase of musical talent across the nations, including, you know, that European nation, Australia. <laughs> well, I found out why Australia's in, actually. Yeah, it's... It's a public service broadcasters, isn't it? Yeah, they've always been huge fans of it. They've always paid a huge chunk of money to broadcast it. They've got a big following over there, even though Australians on one coast have to get up for three o'clock in the morning for it to start, and on the other coast, it's like one o'clock in the morning. But it's always had a huge following load of money getting invested so when it, it was the anniversary one was it the 50th anniversary one that they invited them along as a special like celebration of like you've contributed towards us for so many years come and join in and then they just stayed they agreed to let them stay and every year they've always been in within the finals and every year australia's tracks are really good but they don't perform really well this year they had a really great rock track and it's another one of those that I've seen it a lot with Eurovision that they're using proper established artists who've already got stuff out there. And it's a great way to get recognition from them because I've followed a load of the artists from Eurovision over the past few years on Spotify as a result and discovered some absolute gems of bands like rock acts, etc. It's become something a lot better than like when it used to all be like, you know, crazy costumes and weird like lyrics about boom, bada bangs. It's such a Even though great we had a cha cha cha. Which was my top pick for this year <laughs> i when i first heard it i was like oh wow this is typical eurovision and then the more that i like got involved in it i was like actually i want this to win and it it did quite well it came second uh that's finland's entry and it, it's just fun it's energetic it's got a good riff to it it's got a bit of like rock metal in there but it's catchy it's an earworm. It fits in. But the winner was Sweden. Uh, Lorene winning for the second time. She won in 2012. And, you know, as much as I wanted Finland to win, as soon as she did her performance, I was like, I think this is the one. I think this will pip it. And uh, so I can't fault it. I know that a load of people in the UK are saying that um, the UK was robbed. We weren't. That track was garbage. <laughs> when I first heard that a few weeks ago, I was just like, oh, we don't want to win next year. And so it was amusing watching the Eurovision when they're constantly saying, oh, I think we're in with a chance this year and we're the last ones to play. So it's always a good sign. And, and then we got hardly any points. We did terribly. It was such a mundane track, wasn't it? Yeah. It was just, I mean, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out I'm not a fan of Eurovision and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll explain why I watched it. But it, I thought the, the track was just. It's just, yeah. It was, 
just some, it was just sat there. It was just quite bland and typical. Yeah. There wasn't anything that stood out about it. And I know that some people online are saying like the sound was a bit badly engineered for this like on the and that's let it down. When you hear the studio version of it, it's much better. It isn't. I've listened to the studio version. That's <laughs> that's the one which initially made me go, that's garbage. And the, some people saying like the judges like were unfair because of the sound issues that she had. The judges based their scoring on the Friday night run through. That's when they come up with their scores. It's only the right. public votes that matter on the night because all the judges ones are already in the can. They don't make their decision based on one performance in front of them. They've seen all the rehearsals, all the like run throughs. And then it's on the Friday night that the professional judges sit and go, right, this is where we're giving the points to. So don't think that any sound issues on the live event of the night will let anyone down. That's not how it all works. You really know this stuff, don't you? You are. I completely love it. I, I've loved everything about... Uh, it's bizarre because my mum doesn't like Eurovision. She never did. But we always kind of watched it through through my childhood. And so even though she didn't like it, we were still watching it. And so I've just grown with it. And it's just become like a centre of like my year now. It's like I look forward to the Eurovision events. I try not to listen to all the tracks before the night. I like to be surprised on the night, but I'll cherry pick a few that look like they stand out and I check them out. And that's why Finland grew on me and uh, I would have loved them to have won. But well done to them for coming second with such a belter of a track. I, I'm not a fan. I, I'm going to be honest, but I watched it last night because uh, my other half has sadly been quite poorly. And as a bit of a treat, she just wanted to sit in front of the TV and watch and watch Eurovision. I, I was kind of disappointed that Fire Saga weren't in this year. Um, <laughs> it would be nice to see the return of Fire Saga. But um, I, I've got to be honest, uh, while the show, well, Eurovision doesn't land for me. I, I, I was half interested. Yeah. I did think the production values were incredibly, yes. incredibly well done. I thought the staging, the way it was shot, the little fills in between. The, the lighting was incredible. I just thought it was really, really well produced. Uh, and for that alone, I thought it was incredibly engaging. It's the little touches that, you know, like uh, the way that it was laid out where you've got all the like all the artist section halfway across the arena. And when another artist came on stage, the lights around the seating area reflected the flag of that nation. Yes, I thought everything was really, really beautifully art directed and beautifully lit. Kudos to um, you know the team in Liverpool and the BBC for how well put together it all was. And Hannah Wadding Waddingham was absolute fire. She yes. was oh, she is just yeah. I, I read interview with her when she got given the role of like being one of the hosts that she was so nervous because she'd never done something of that kind of scale. But all of them. All of the hosts all held it together and kept it kept it running at quite a good pace. Yeah, yeah, it was one of those where it didn't run over, which it occasionally does. From what I could tell, it didn't run. Well, over, it went but... it went past midnight, which uh, was, oh, did it? which is is amusing because uh, it's been shown at cinemas, as you know. This year's one was shown at cinemas across the UK, and everyone was insisting that it would be finished by eleven o'clock. And I was like, no, it won't. We're putting the staff on yeah. until one o'clock. They're like, well, oh, it's like, no, I watch it every year. It usually finishes anything from half past 11 till half past 12 and it finished at 20 past 12 last night so it's almost as though i know this subject <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think i went to bed before I, I went to bed at midnight so uh uh say my other half stayed up and watched it to the very end did you see the judges scoring before the uh public votes came in uh, I, I caught bits and pieces of that. Yeah, I saw the strange guy from Iceland. Yes, I was going to mention the Iceland one because last year um, they did the reference to the Eurovision movie 
Right. Where, where like, it was 12 points to, yeah, yeah, ding dong. And like, it was just a nice little fun <laughs> moment. So I was expecting something quirky from them again this year and doing the whole gimp suit, like taking the various layers yeah. of masks off and then just opening his mouth just to say, Belgium. And then closing it again. <laughs> Brilliant. Out in hysterics. <laughs> They always bring the they always they always that. bring some good fun to it with their um, scoring thing, and that's kind of what I like about it. It's that everyone seems to be having fun. Yeah, it, it really did feel like fun in a way that I think the last time I saw it, I found it found it really frustrating and annoying. But I, I'm never going to be a fan. Yeah. But I thought what I saw was incredibly well done. Yeah, and, and, I, and I'm really impressed with say the production value even though some of the songs I did like Germany's effort. Yeah, again yeah. another light hard rocks. Rocket, it's like Ramstein yeah. playing. It was never going to score well, because uh, no. unfortunately, as much as like you know, I appreciate artists like that that get into it. They they will never tap into the general Eurovision crowd across all the nations. Some people are saying that it was very political last last night. Oh, just because we didn't do well this year, everyone starts moaning that it's political. <laughs> it wasn't political, and you know, Sweden won, which people are saying, oh, it's conspiracy. It's been fixed. Simply because it coincidentally means that next year when they host, it's the 50th anniversary of ABBA winning for Waterloo. Oh, right. I think it's just a, one of those lucky coincidences. I don't think there's any conspiracy behind it at all because I do think that Sweden's track was the best one of the evening. Okay, so that's Eurovision. Uh, my week has been, uh, I'll let you into uh, a little secret of a project that I was working on. I uh, can't talk about it, but uh, I've been finishing a script for a deadline, which was Friday, and um, that's... That's more or less done and sent off and waiting now on a uh, uh, any kind of response, which I don't think I'll probably get for another couple of weeks or so. But is this the self same script that you sent us the first act? Yes, that's it. Yeah. That's it. So I'm um, fingers crossed on that yeah, one. Yeah, I'll keep my fingers crossed on that one because what I read hooked me before title oh, before title card. And, and there's a role for you in it. You discovered. Well, yes, I just I discovered that there's a role that was pretty pretty much repeats something that I've adverbatum said in real life a few times. And as soon as I read it, I was just like, "Has Lee just written?" You, it I, I'm going to make. A, <laughs> a, I was influenced by a conversation that I you related on the show for that scene. So, so yes, kudos to you for that for that particular <laughs> scene. So anyway, fingers crossed. We're waiting to see if it does ever get to the point of production and it's accepted. Then. You know, I'll be able to tell you all about it. Fingers but what I am going to tell you about is this week's social. Because last week's social, uh, we asked you, what is your most anticipated film for the rest of the year? We're coming up to the halfway point. We started into the summer season. And uh, that means blockbuster season. What are you looking forward to? Andy, how did we do? We've had some nice responses. Uh, Stephen Young was pretty swift to reply, as he normally is. Um, it's got to be. Thank you, Stephen. It's got to be Flash for the summer release. Keaton has returned again as Batman. I've only been waiting how long? 31 years? Oh my goodness. And then June part two for the winter releases. And Stephen knows how to make how to sweeten me up. He knows what things I'm looking forward to. And I I do wonder at times whether he's just playing to me to make me go, Oh, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> but great choices. I mean, Flash, there's the interest in like, you know, how they're going to use it to reboot the DCU. But there's also that nostalgia factor for Keaton, and that's the main draw power is we get to see Keaton back in that role. And June Part 2 Absolutely. is a no-brainer because, boy, that first one was just such a beautiful film. Um, Lindsay Story also says Flash. Has to be Flash next month, but also looking forward to the new Exorcist film, just hoping they don't ruin it, which I've replied that I'm keeping myself optimistic on the Exorcist, because, especially because it's a legacy sequel. Fingers crossed, eh? 
I've got to be honest, that dropped off my radar, but yeah, that's that should be on there. When they initially said that they were going to be rebooting Exorcist, I was like, oh, do we need it? But with them saying, we're bringing back some of the old cast and it's going to be a legacy sequel, it's like, now you've piqued my interest. Now you've drawn me in. Um, Helen Blair, hoping to catch Guardians of the Galaxy. Barbie, which the mister wants to see, um, that's Kenneth, as Gosling's in it and he's playing Ken. Um, and Little Mermaid, because she's hoping it's as good as her favourite Disney film. And I, I'm looking forward to Little Mermaid, but I've never been beholden to the original Disney film. No, it's not. A, you know what? I've never seen it. I think it's sweet and charming. I've just realised I've never seen Little Mermaid. You and Edgar Wright, apparently, uh, which yeah. I discovered this week. Good company. I'll mention him a neat thing later as to why I've discovered that. I've replied to say Barbie's top of my list alongside Oppenheimer. Both films come out around about the same time, so that's going to be a fun week. Ken replied saying, yeah, Barbie for the win. The trailers have been great. It's going to be a hell of a release day. My mumsy, she fancies watching Guardians of the Galaxy. Doesn't get to go to the cinema as much these days. She thinks Oppenheimer is on her interest because she knew one of the scientists who worked alongside him. Oh, that's interesting. Yep. Uh, Little Mermaid too. And she's just noticed White Man Can't Jump as well, which she's quite interested in. Which that releases next month, I think. Straight to Disney+. Wow. Seeing nothing. Oh, I was going to say, that's probably why then. Yeah, it's going straight to streaming in the UK. My eldest sister, Janet. Asked why have they done a white men can't jump, which you know, you know how that that's like a provoking the bear to me when people start moaning about remakes. So uh, I had to just reply to it. It's like because the film is 30 years old, not a strong appeal for younger audiences, retelling stories for new generation, updating for the times we live in. It's been a part of movies and indeed <laughs> storytelling in general throughout the ages. So that's why they're remaking White Man Can't Jump because funnily enough, if you say the word the names Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes to a modern audience they look at you and go who so that's why they remake it because the old film will no longer appeal because the names are no longer the big names that they were to a newer audience so no problem with it i i'll be watching it i'll be reviewing it and i'll be letting you know once it comes out over on twitter dom holder indiana jones naturally but very keen to see Oppenheimer. seems to be a quite a lot yeah, of buzz that's for Oppenheimer. High on my list um, Oppenheimer and barbie are on my top list which is how i replied to him and said mission impossible is high up there as well you see that's the top of my list um just to jump in on that one the next mission impossible film really yeah. really really more psyched than, than i i thought i would be yeah it feels like we've waited ages for this and so the anticipation has built and built and built and knowing that it's a two-parter and it's the same creative team who've given us the last yeah. few offerings, which have been absolutely stunning, getting better and better on each outing. Oh, you just can't wait to see what they deliver this time. I'm surprised no one's mentioned Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse yet. Well, yes, Mev's Mats. And, and to be fair, Mev's Mats uh, threw in quite a lot of films. So Spider-Verse was in there, but it was top of his list. And there's a lot, hopefully, cool stuff coming over the next few months. Most excited for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, The Boogeyman. No Hard Feelings, Indiana Jones, Insidious the Red Door, Barbie, They Clone Tyrone, Haunted Mansion, Meg 2, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, Blue Beetle, Strays, They Listen, and some more, which is a solid list. Let's be honest, that is a pretty solid, all-encompassing list of everything that everyone should be looking forward to. Pretty much. Ozzy also threw in Across the Spider-Verse alongside Asteroid City. Yeah, that's high on my list. Fayla Fay kept it simple, saying probably whatever they add to Shudder. I already saw Renfield, a horror fan out there who's just waiting to see what should have drops this year. Stevie Dan 1969, another one for Oppenheimer, but also Gran Turismo and The Wicker Man. Is that getting a reissue this year? Oh, it's a anniversary reissue, isn't it? Oh, wow. 
I've never seen it on the big screen, you know. 1973 it came out, so it's as, it's as old as me. It's on his 50th anniversary, so it's getting a reissue across cinemas, and it would be great to see that on the big screen again. Poor old Anomnomnomaly. This is one of the things that really make, like, makes my heart go, oh, seeing as, as I live about a 50-mile round trip to my nearest cinema, and it's one of the City World ones earmarked for possible closure due to their impending demise, I probably won't oh, get sorry, to see anything know. anytime soon. Last film I saw was Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness about 12 months ago before mo- before I moved to the countryside. Was hoping to get to see John Wick 4, missed it. Spider-Verse 2 and Guardians Volume 3, I'm possibly going to miss all of them. I'll stream them all in a few months. And it's one of them, I'd love to live out in the countryside. Yeah, my ideal home is like something isolated away from civilization. But with my love of cinema and the experience of cinema, I would not be able to manage it. I would need to have a cinema nearby. Well, just, just, just live your cinema life through us. We'll keep you informed. Yeah. And we'll, we'll keep you on the ball. So you, you, you feel as though you're still part of that film community. Uh, John at UK Film Nerd. Indy, Indy, Indy 5, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. That one. And Mission Impossible yeah. comes second. <laughs> I think he's slightly excited. I mean, I've been trying to not get too excited by Indy, as, we, as I've been saying. Mm-hmm. You talked about. I've still not quite gotten over being burnt by Crystal Skull. But it's Mangold that gives me faith. And that trailer, yeah. as particularly the more recent trailer, has completely won me over. And Mission Impossible, for me, is higher up the list than Indy. Colin Mulhall, another one for Mission Impossible. It never disappoints for him. Yeah, so it, it looks like Oppenheimer, Mission Impossible and Barbie are getting quite a few nods and mentions yeah. here. Uh, as I said, Dune is, is high up there for me, Dune 2, and of course, Mission Impossible. Marvels, I'm interested to see. I'm not overwhelmed by the, the trailer, but I am interested. Yeah, And of course, Asteroid City, yes. because... Just because we're saying that Asteroid City will end up being on our review of the year at the end of the year, my number one film. For Let's the hope year. so. <laughs> because we've not been disappointed. Wes Anderson hasn't let me down to date. And it just no. looks perfectly Wes Anderson. For those people who don't like Wes Anderson out there, I do get that he's not for everyone. I do completely understand that some people will be put off by his his approach to filmmaking. But for me, it's the art of them that I love. The quirky art approach that he takes makes it something so i guess that's going to give us a question for this week for our social challenge and andy this week's question is everyone's got one everyone can usually trace it back to that moment but the first film that made you fall in love with cinema it could be anything from going to see star wars for the first time which which is i was already in love with cinema but that that made it a lifelong relationship for me Going to see 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was uh, such a joyous moment of going, wow, this is awesome on a big screen. But what was your first film that kindled this relationship you have with going to the flicks, going to the movies, going to the cinema? Name that film. Let us know on our socials. And Andy, those socials are? All over the place. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Mastodon. Just search for at UK. You'll find us pretty much on most social channels and you'll be able to reply to us through there. Or if you're not on the social media and you want to get involved, if you're listening to us on Spotify, the question will be posted in there. You can reply to it there or you can send us an email podcast at filmfile.uk. We can't wait to hear from you and we can't wait to read out your responses on the show next week. So here we go with this week's show. What have we got for you on the film file this week? We've got Deep Dives, we're deep diving Danny Boyle's. Some people think it's a classic. It wasn't a box office hit, but for those who have seen it, there's much love for Sunshine. We've got news and we've got reviews. 
that include The Mother, The Old Way, and we've got a film we've both seen still, a Michael J. Fox story. But before any of that, let's kick off with the box office and the news. So we talked about this last week and we were ready for a discussion on whether the superhero movies have started to decline because Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 opened big last week, but has it continued? So a pretty quiet week for new releases this week, which means that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 held onto the top spots worldwide. In the US this weekend, it took another 62 million, which was around a 51% drop off on last week, which as you'll know, with most Marvel films of recent years dropping off 67 to 69%, that's quite a good sign that maybe the superhero bubble hasn't broken yet. Super Mario Brothers holds into second place with another 12.6 million added onto its total. Book Club, the next chapter, in third place with 6.7 million. Evil Dead Rise in fourth place with 3.7 million. And Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, in fifth place with 2.5 million. Here in the UK, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, again holding the top spot in first place, taking another 5.3 million. Super Mario in second place, 853,000 added onto its total. Book Club, the next chapter, in third place with 299,000 on its opening weekend. Evil Dead Rise in fourth place with 258,000. And Eurovision, the grand final live, yes, the live broadcast event, went straight into the fifth place with 235,000 at the UK box office. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is currently up to 530 million worldwide, and Super Mario Brothers is now on 1.2 billion worldwide, and still sticking into that top five internationally. So Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, there was that worry that it was going to get a huge drop off and looking at things it's recovered pretty well i think it's down to good word of mouth yeah i have talked to a lot of people who really really love it and really have a soft spot for it and i think they're going back in a way that they probably didn't go back for other superhero movies i don't think yet that the superhero movies are out of this critical crossroads of where they go and i think that's kind of dependent on the Flash. But I, does it just come down to good movies? Um, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 was a good movie. Yeah. And people stuck around for it. I guess with, is it the next uh, franchise? Is it part 20 in the Fast <laughs> and the Furious? I don't know. Uh, you know more about it than I do. Yeah. That's got a, a built-in audience as well. And there's no fatigue there but it is a very specific audience isn't it for that for that particular uh, run of movies yes uh, yeah well you say that but then there's people like me who i will be going to watch fast x simply because i feel that i have to now because i'm so into the i've watched all the other films and despite the fact the last one was utter garbage i still i'm still going to be watching fast x and yeah that's got a bought-in audience it's expected to do well it's supposed to be the the start of the final chapters it was going to be just one more I film after this. was the final chapter. No, they were splitting it into two parts, which has now been oh, hinted and rumoured that is going to go to three parts instead because it looks like no one's giving up. And also there's some people who we thought would never return to that franchise who apparently are returning for these last few parts. And I'm not. we're not going to spoil it for people because it's going to be next week when that film lands by saying what names are rumoured to be coming back. But they're looking at closing it all up but whether they take two films or three films to do it is still very much up in the air because I think they're just waiting to see whether it draws the audiences next week. But Fast X might draw away from Guardians, so we might see a significant drop-off next week. But at the moment, it's holding well 
Uh, but it is okay. because, like you say, it's a good film and it looks good as well. The effects are amazing yeah. in it, whereas every other superhero film has had that. The effects are garbage. The effects are garbage for the past year and a half because they've been rushed and under pressure. But James Gunn yeah. has made sure that this was visually spectacular. The word of mouth's working. Yeah. Oh, good news. Superhero films aren't dead. It just needs to be the right type of movies. Yeah. Well, wait and see. Flash is only a few weeks away. And uh, again, that's another another crossroads. I can't wait till Fast and the Furious teams up with the other Universal project, Jurassic Park. <laughs> that might be the time when I, when I might I might be interested. <laughs> anyway, what do we got for news this week? Because I've got a couple of hot topics I can't wait to talk about. Okay, strike update. Uh, the writer's strike has entered its second week. A bunch of productions are now temporarily paused or outright shut down amidst all the industrial action. Marvel and Disney's Daredevil Born Again has been put on hold. No filming has been done as of yet, according to Deadline. Apple TV's Severance has been put on hold. Oh. Halfway through shooting its second season, it's now on hold because of the writer's strike. It reportedly joins Netflix's Stranger Things, Max's Hacks, Showtime's Billions, as a series that was in production that is shut down fully until the strike ends. Also joining them is A Knight of Seven Kingdoms, The Hedge Knights, the new Game of Thrones spin-off, which was in development. George R.R. R. Martin expressed his full-throated support for the WGA and said that the show's writers' room has closed for the duration, with the showrunner and young writers all on the picket lines. <laughs> there was an amusing response to someone saying that George R.R. R. Martin has been on a writers' strike for the past 10 years. <laughs> 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 They're never going to stop digging at the fact that he's never going to finish those last books, is he? Um, second season of House of the Dragon, which began filming on April the 11th, is still going ahead, but the scripts for the second season were apparently fully completed months ago. No further revisions are required. They just can't make any revisions, so they have to stick to script. And Andor is still going to be going ahead because, again, the shooting started. It will continue through until August. They reckon that the scripts are already polished. And also it gives an opportunity on those kind of movies and TV series that post-production can sort of kick in early, uh, yes. especially when there's a, an awful lot of effects work and, and the effects work can still be moving forward on it, even though production like on Daredevil, for instance, has, has ground to a halt. I mean, good luck to all the writers. Uh, we, we talked about this last week. They deserve this. They are, to some extent, the especially movies, the unsung heroes of films. TV, yeah. of course, they've got much more leverage as um, they are the guiding the, the guiding lights of, of, of TV series in the way that directors are in, in feature films. So uh, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. Neil Gaiman weighed in on the matter because people were asking what's happening with the Sandman season two. He said that that series will possibly be delayed due to the strike, saying whether or not any of Sandman is delayed depends on how long the strike goes on. And there won't be any scab scripts on Sandman. So he's very clear that until they can make sure that they've got writers around, he's not going to have anyone coming in who's not a, a guild member to polish up scripts and move it in production. And Strange New World Season 3 was set to start filming, and that's been put on hold as well. So there's a lot of slowdown across the industry. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and the big guns are the ones that have the most impact on studios, and, and hopefully... Yeah. that's where the leverage comes to to get these guys uh, the payment that they deserve yeah there is a fair bit of news of things going into production so there's still not a complete shutdown across the industry but we are only into week two if this goes on as long as the last writers guild strike went on we'll see a lot more productions being put on hold as they hit crises points and realize they need writers back on set in other news Disney had its investor call this week 
And so there's been a few bits of business information with regards how Disney are going forwards over the next year or so. In the US, they're set to merge their Hulu service into the Disney Plus service, similar to how internationally we've got the Star service for all the adult content. In America at the moment, you pay for the two subscriptions and it's two separate platforms. They're merging them both together, but it will still need two separate subscriptions. So it's going to be a higher cost to get both of them together. Hulu, as we know, and we've spoken about before, is jointly owned by Disney and Comcast with the option for next year, either party can buy out the other one. So the split cost for the subscriptions has to be there because of the Comcast side of it. If in 2024, Disney take the option and buy it out, they will merge it completely and it'll become one subscription. So that's why there's the different costings. Uh, Disney also revealed this week that they've lost 4 million subscribers in the last quarter, dropping down to 157.8 mil million subscribers. Most of this, once again, is through their Asian markets hot star offering, where when they lost the sporting events, particularly the cricket, they sort of load of people cancelling subscriptions because that's what a lot of that audience were subscribing for in particular. And they've also revealed that they'll be pulling content from the service, similar to how HBO Max recently did. And it's kind of what every streaming service does, let's be honest. Yeah, savings, service space. Why is this causing big news and loads of discussion online when it's something that happens all the time? If something's not generating viewers or traffic, why should they spend money with the server space to keep it on there? It's not infinite server space. They need to do it. This is the old argument that has been said ever since streaming kicked off. If you want to keep something that you can watch at any time, don't rely yep. on streaming. Physical media should never be completely eradicated for this reason. Streaming will always be about adding content and taking it off when no one's watching it anymore. So you can't just expect that that film that you've been meaning to watch for four years and never got round to is still going to be there because you've not watched it. No one's watching it. <laughs> it's not an infinite library. If something's not generating views, it's just dead hard drive space. Yeah. CFO Christine McCarthy said, we're in the process of reviewing the content on our services to align with strategic changes in our approach to content curation. As a result, we'll be removing approximately 1.5 to 1.8 billion worth of content off there. She also said that going forward, they intend to produce lower volumes of content in alignment with the strategic shift that they're having, which is what Iger was saying about quality over quantity a few months ago. Um, so they're, they're definitely going to be more surgical in her words about what they make. Iger added that when you make a lot of content, everything needs to be marketed. You're spending a lot of money marketing things that are not going to have an impact on the bottom line, except negatively due to the marketing costs. And that's why he wants it to be quality over quantity, because why throw loads of money at something and then loads of money on marketing it if only half of it's going to land? It's been rumoured for years. It was dead in the water. Then it came back. And just like its title character, it has re-risen from the grave. Yet Tim Burton's Beetlejuice sequel has now officially entered production. And it's been reported that Monica Bellucci and William Defoe have joined the cast. Bellucci is set to play the bioexorcist's wife, while Defoe is playing a law enforcement officer in the afterlife. Michael Keaton's back. Michael Keaton's on a run at the moment. Uh, apparently, uh, Winona Ryder as Lydia Dietz. And it's also been confirmed that Catherine O'Hara, yes, the great Catherine O'Hara, will be back as Delia Dietz. Yep. Um, Jenny Ortega is set to star as Lydia's daughter. And this Justin, Justin Thoreau, is uh, in an undisclosed role. I never thought this would happen. I really didn't. I thought mm. it was going to be one of those films that people are going to say there's going to be a Beetlejuice. They've been be talking about it for nearly 40 years. So great to see it. It's written by Alfred Goff and Miles Miller, whose name is all over lots of TV stuff like Smallville and, of course, Wednesday. 
yeah, I'm all for this. Like you, I thought this would just be vaporware constantly. There was moments when it was suggested it would be an animated movie. There was moments that it looked like it was going to get made and then it was stopped. It was always one of them. It's like, has it gone too long before it's come back? But now that it is coming back, oh boy, I can't help but get excited, especially with the names involved. I like that everyone's reprising roles. I love the new inclusion of Willem Dafoe and Monica Bellucci. I'm lining this up as my film of the, the year next year already. September the 6th, 2024 is the announced okay. release date so uh, we can start counting the months away because before you know it this is going to be on top of us or you could just start counting beetlejuice 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 oh now he's going to pop up and do things that's what happened <laughs> quick tv news some more cancellations now these aren't necessarily to do with the writer's strike uh these are mostly to do with viewerships and quality true lies has been cancelled did you watch it did you watch the i've got like four episodes Tyler. in and i could see the potential that it had but it just wasn't getting there and it was a shame because the first episode started off okay but by the end of it it just became mr and mrs smith okay and there's audio mr and mrs smith tv series out there so we don't need two shows doing exactly the same thing and this was the lesser of them the cast are great in it but it, they're just not given much to work with. It was rumoured a couple of weeks ago that it was getting a second season, but it's now being cancelled. It never got the numbers. It possibly is also getting cancelled because of the writer's strike being impacting on things. It's like, well, we were going to like, bring it back, but we've not got anything ready for it. Let's just cut the losses. Uh, Lockwood & Co. has been cancelled. Big Sky's been cancelled. Oh, cancelled. has it? Yep. Oh, man, I love Lockwood & Co. I thought it was awesome. I'm really disappointed. I wanted to see more of that world. Uh, Kung Fu's been cancelled and... The Supernatural spin-off, The Winchesters, has also been cancelled. Yeah, saw that one. We've not had it in the UK yet, have we? Not yet, no. Or whether we will now. We'll probably get it sometime down the line. It'll just be dropped onto probably Amazon because they've tended to have the Supernatural stuff on there. I've got some good news. Good Omen Season 2 has announced a July release date. It has. Uh, July the 28th for the premiere of the second Ooh. season. I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, it, it did the book perfectly, so yeah. this is whole new territory. I, I, I liked it. I won't say that I loved it. It didn't make me laugh out loud in the same way that the book did. The the book I thought was hysterical. I remember being sat on a tube uh, when I lived in London, reading it and, and giggling to myself that people actually, it was probably so loud that people moved because you don't laugh on the tube unless you're <laughs> uh, an act-wielding maniac. But I really, really loved the book. And I just thought the TV series, apart from the casting, which I thought the casting was spot on, did, just didn't hit me as much. So, but I'm looking forward to Good Omen season two. Yeah, it's going to focus a lot on the uh, uncanny bromance between Michael Sheen and David Tennant as Aziraphale and Crowley. Two very unlikely friends who are such best buddies. And now that the apocalypse has been averted and they're trying to just, you know, hang out and get back to a normal kind of life on Earth, they get an unexpected messenger popping up with a surprising mystery that sparks off this new adventure. It's new territory. So whereas like, you know, with Good Open Season 1, you can't help but compare it to the book. Yeah. So as much as you enjoy it, you love the book more. Now we've got new territory. There's a potential that it could become something that stands on its own feet. So talking of David Tennant, the Doctor, Doctor Who, Who trailer yes. landed uh, around Eurovision time. In fact, it was just before Eurovision started. We got a 40-second teaser for the three 60th anniversary specials of Doctor Who, which come out this November. And the titles for the three episodes are The Star Beast, Wild Blue Yonder, and The Giggle. These are the three-part mini-series, I call it. 
that featured David Tennant as the 14th incarnation of the Doctor after previously playing the 10th. Catherine Tate returning as Donna Noble. That's the only thing that kind of makes me go, oh, because I, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't like Donna Noble. I don't like Catherine Tate. No. I, I'll just put it, put it out there. Yasmin Finney plays Donna's daughter, Rose, and we got a better look at Neil Patrick Harris as the film's villain. It's believed to be a new version of the Celestial Toymaker that was played by uh, Michael Goff in the original yeah. 1960s series. Back in the Troughton years. But the teaser began with the question as to why Tennant's face has come back, which that's going to be the overarching mystery over this three-part special. These specials are to tie in with the anniversary of Doctor Who. And so we get to... 60 years. We, we get we get to basically revisit the history of Doctor Who whilst at the same time enjoying something new before we move into the Shooty Gatwa series. Also glimpsed in the teaser were clips of Beep the Meep. Yes. <laughs> and the insect-like Wrath Warriors, uh, which were from the very obscure 1980s comics, Doctor Who and the yeah, Star Beast. That is, that is a deep dive. Yeah, uh, Beep the Meep appeared in Doctor Who Weekly when I think it was still owned by Marvel because Marvel had uh, yeah. the publishing rights for Doctor Who. Uh, and uh, has appeared in episodes of Big Finish Productions, the audio dramas. So there are some some absolute, absolute deep dives there. Again, it's only months away. Uh, we'll start to see more clips, obviously, over the next few months. 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. I remember going to see the 50th anniversary and saw the big screen episode, Day watched it Doctor. on TV, then nipped down to Cineworld and watched uh, The Day of the Doctor. Watching Day of the Doctor on the big screen was amazing. I hope they do something like that again. Spinning off into other sci-fi, video game franchise Destiny could be heading to movies or TV. I don't know this. Enlighten me. Destiny is a first-person shooter from Bungie, who the original creators of the Halo game series, but when they split away from that franchise, they created their own one, which is set in a future world setting where there's guardians who are resurrected souls of one-time warriors who are trying to stop an evil incursions from different planets in the system and from, from dark other dimensions whilst protecting a strange entity known as the Traveller, which is a giant globe that hovers above the, like, the primary city. And it's beautiful sci-fi. It's had great voice casts throughout the game series that have all brought the constantly evolving story to life. Destiny 1, the first game, like had like its set story, but it had like update content to add more into the story. Destiny 2 started that way, but has now become a free-to-play game where you can buy expansion packs to evolve the story further and further. Okay. And each time it builds layers and layers. I can see the potential in this. It's got a real good sci-fi core to it, and it could be fantastic action-focused. A TV series I prefer because there's so much material to tap into there that I feel that film wouldn't be able to get it all right but yeah it's um, apparently Warner Brothers Discovery executive Gabriel Van Hus is set to head up the expansion of the Destiny franchise into other mediums which will also include comic books books audio formats which it has tapped into with like limited series runs in comics over the years it is just a generic first person shooter game you know you jump on you go around you shoot things but the story is what holds it together and the story of everything that's happening in the small solar system setting that it's put in is so beautifully okay. told. So this is something that caught me by surprise. And it's one of those projects that has been in development for donkish years. I heard about this back in the late 90s when it was a James Cameron project. And that is The Crowded Room, which is no longer a movie, but is now an Apple TV uh, crime and mystery series. And it stars Tom Holland. 
Now, as I said, this has been in development for years. Uh, James Cameron was all over it. And originally it was going to star John Cusack. And the story is uh, Danny, a young man arrested for a violent crime, except Danny has no memory as to what's happened. But there's more to this story than meets the eye. So this, as I said, uh, kind of hit me by surprise. I didn't know it was in development. The series has been created by Akiva Goldman. It also stars Amanda Seyfried, and it's an adaptation of a non-fiction book by Daniel Keyes. So the, the title is a little bit of a spoiler, but yeah, didn't know this was on the agenda. But Apple TV are very good at very high production uh, TV series. Yes, as we're seeing at the moment with Silo, which if you've not checked that out yet, I thoroughly recommend gravitating around Silo. I'm always interested with what Apple TV do as with the TV shows in particular. The films are very hit or miss. The Apple TV yeah, original movies Ghosted, don't always hit the, mark, hit the mark. But on the shows, they know how to really engineer the stories and make them look absolutely fantastic. Update on Babylon 5? Yes, this, this was a surprise. After the announcement that we made last week about the new animated Babylon 5 movie, we now know that it's going to be called Babylon 5 The Road Home, and we get to travel across the galaxy with John Sheridan as he unexpectedly finds himself transported through multiple timelines and alternate realities in a quest to find his way back home. Um, along the way, he will reunite with familiar faces from the series whilst discovering new cosmic revelations about the history, purpose, and meaning of the universe. Returning cast, who are all going to lend their voice, Bruce Boxleitner will be Yay. John Sheridan. Claudia Christian is back as Susan Ivanova. Peter Jurassic will be back to voice Londo Malari. Bill Mummy as Lanier. Tracy Scoggins is back as Elizabeth Lockley. And Patricia Talman as Lita Alexander. So pretty much all the core cast who are still with us, because sadly, there's so many. That Andreas Katsoulis passed away a few years ago. Yeah, we've lost so many great names. Yeah. Can't wait, Andy. Can't wait. As I said before, this was uh, a seminal sci-fi series. Ran up against Deep Space Nine. It was a lot of comparison in, in sort of concepts. But for me, Babylon 5 always won out. For the cast members that passed away, their voice roles have been recast. Anthony Hansen will be play, playing Michael Garibaldi. Phil Lamar will play Dr. Stephen Franklin. Andrew Morgado will play Jakar. Rebecca Reilly as Delenn and Paul Goyot as Zathras and Jeffrey Sinclair. So they have got some established quality voice cast to reprise roles of those sadly missed great names that used to be involved. So there for it. The look, the looking at a summertime release for the film, uh, Warner Bros. Animation and Discovery Home Entertainment planning to either land that onto straight onto one of the streaming services or, fingers crossed, at least a limited, limited cinema release. Oh, that'd be great. So, as we know, Dan Stevens is next to be seen in Godzilla X-Kong, The New Empire. I don't know what X means. Uh, anyway, after that, he's headed for some universal monster movie action as he's joining the cast of the untitled thriller being put together by the screen team known as Radio Silence. And you've got a theory, and we mentioned this the other week, as to what that could be. Yeah, um, I speculated Dracula's daughter was, uh, well, that was my top tip. Yeah, it's, it's rumours have it that it's it's a screen version remake of Dracula's daughter uh, with a story possibly evolving around a young girl kidnapped by a gang whose supernatural parentage causes real problems for the criminals. But we don't know. Stevens as Dracula could be. Could be. I can see it. You know, it won't be a Nicolas Cage Dracula, which I think is the all-time best Dracula ever made now. <laughs> uh, but it'll be a great... He's it, it, that kind of person that could really fill that kind of role. Let's keep our eye out and keep our ears to the ground. 
There's one that I didn't anticipate. The 2005 Andrew Nichols crime thriller Lord of War, which had a fantastic performance from Nicolas Cage as yeah. an arms dealer. Well, it's getting a sequel. Is it? It's interesting that I've got a piece of merchandising from that film, which is a bullet. I have as well. The bullet keyring. Yeah. Yeah, I've got that as well. I think we both went to the same screening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Nichols returning to write and direct the sequel for Vendome Pictures. Cage will reprise his role as arms dealer Yuri Arloff. And John Wick Chapter 4 star Bill Skarsgård is going to play his son. In the film, Orlov learns he has a son named Anton who isn't trying to right his father's wrongs. He's trying to beat them. And he he launches a mercenary army to fight America's Middle Eastern conflicts. Nichols, who also wrote the Truman Show screenplay and penned Gattaca, said in a statement, there's so much more to explore with these characters. Plato said it best, only the dead have seen the end of war. I'm looking forward to spending more time in the company of the charming devil that is Yuri Orlov, and now his illegitimate son, who turns out to not be legitimate in any way. I'm in for this, because Lord of War was such a surprise, I didn't expect much from it. But yeah. right from the opening moments, I mean, it's always had one of my favourite opening scenes uh, over the opening titles, which is... That's the, the creation the, of the bullet, the, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, the birth and life of a bullet, shown from the bullet's perspective, from being like on the manufacturing line to loaded into a clip to being shot. Beautiful moments to um, Buffalo Springfield's For What It's Worth, which, phew, what a track. You know, Nicolas Cage can be very hit or miss. As we know. <laughs> As we know. But in this, he was definitely a hit. Yeah. And it's going to be interesting to see him reprise this kind of role again. So, Andy, you were surprised by that. I was surprised by this. I didn't see this coming, which is uh, going to be a pun when I tell you what it is. Bird Box, Barcelona. Netflix has released the first trailer for a Bird Box spin-off from the streamer's 2018 huge horror hit that starred Mm. Sandra Bullock. I've not watched the trailer. I did see that it had landed, and it's another one of them that, like, when did he make these films and manage to get away with us not knowing anything about them? <laughs> <laughs> the streamers are getting really good at these secret filming operations. I'm interested. I don't think I'm going to go out my way for watching it, but I'm interested. Yeah, this is a Spanish language spin-off held by the occupant and the head filmmakers, Alex and David Pasta. It follows a, a similar premise after the mysterious force decimates the world's population by causing all of those who see whatever it is to take their own life. Sebastian and his young daughter Anna must navigate their own journey of survival through the desolate streets of Barcelona. But as they form an uneasy alliance with other survivors and make their way toward a safe haven, a threat more sinister than the unseen creatures grows. And of course, really, you had Bird Box and A Quiet Place, which was sort of very, very similar themed. And there there was a, a sequel book, Mallory, which is not bad, which I'd heard that's what Netflix were developing. But as you said, when did they make this? Kind of came out of nowhere. Stephen King news. Always ready for some Stephen King news. Another one of his short stories from Skeleton Crew, The Monkey, is going to be adapted into a film with Theo James cast in the lead role. And this adaptation is created from James Wan. Uh, The story of The Monkey begins when twin brothers Hal and Bill discover their father's old monkey toy in an attic. A series of gruesome deaths start occurring all around them. So the brothers decide to throw the monkey away and move on with their lives growing apart over the years. But then mysterious deaths begin again. And the brothers must reunite to find a way to destroy the monkey for good before it takes the lives of everyone close to them. It's a cracking short story. Whether it can expand out to a film, I'm not sure. Okay, I think I've read it. But I'm interested. James Wan's behind the scenes on it. Let's see how it comes out. I'm always... And I was having this discussion at work the other day that as much as I find myself extremely disappointed every time there's a Stephen King hangout, it's for the one or two Stephen King projects that adapt well that I still gravitate towards 
watching each of them. You still have faith. I still have faith that some some people can occasionally tap into what makes Stephen King so good. Hey, talking of which, we we should be due a Salem's Lot trailer any day now. Yes, that's gone quiet for quite a while while it's been in post-production so it's got to be just around the corner ready for them to probably spring it next week and say it's landing on netflix next week who knows idris elba is going to direct for his second time he last directed back in 2018 with the feature yardy uh, but he's now hot on the success of the luther film on netflix set to star produce and direct an action thriller called infernus for millennium media and he plays donovan kamara a un human rights activist sent to investigate reports of refugees being illegally detained inside a u.s black site however what should be a simple task turns deadly when the most dangerous inmates break free and now he has to work to safely get all the refugees out whilst going head to head with brilliant criminal masterminds Uh, it's been penned by robert mark from a story by tom boyle and filming is set to begin on october the 9th in london most of the shoot will take place in london with additional photography taking place in Ghana in the TD Akuna Studios. Okay, we've had some trailer drops this week. We had The Walking Dead, Dead City. Uh, Maggie and Negan basically take Manhattan. It's not a sequel to The Muppets Take Manhattan. Uh, A lot more zombies involved than that particular Muppet movie. An interesting one, Poor Things, in which William Dafoe resurrects Emma Stone in what looks a very bizarre, almost Bride of Frankenstein-esque kind of horror art film. And then one that made me think instantly of you, Andy, Meg to the Trench, because it was just it was just a giant beast movie. Yeah, uh, I'm there for Meg too. I enjoyed the Meg. I'm there for the Meg too. It's great big giant shark megalodon and uh, Jason Statham punching underwater creatures. What more do you need in life? And just back to the realms of TV. I've been looking forward to this for absolute ages since I heard it was announced. We talked about it on the show. And that's Ryan Johnson's uh, new TV detective series starring Natasha Lyonne. uh, And that's called Poker Face. And we've been wondering when it's going to appear. Anyway, it landed in the States uh, on Peacock, a 10-part case of the week show which many drew favorable contrast to the old Columbo series it's been on so many top 10 lists and it is of course ryan johnson so we are super interested it's finally coming to the uk and it's coming this month it's coming to sky i am so giddy because i've heard so much good stuff about this show rounding off the news with news that dolph lundgren the action icon has revealed in this past week in an interview that he's been privately battling cancer on and off for the past eight years. Oh dear, I didn't know that. Apparently, it, doctors reportedly first discovered and removed a cancerous tumour on his kidney in 2015. And he says that he's done scans every six months, then every year, and then it was fine for around f- five years. And then in 2020, he was back in Sweden and had some kind of acid reflux. Doesn't know what it was. They did an MRI and found there were more tumours around the area. One of the tumours had grown too large to remove. He had to start systemic therapy. Further tumours were then discovered in the fall of 2021 as he arrived in London to film the second Aquaman and fourth Expendables film. Lundgren said, We realised it was a lot worse than we thought. The doctor kind of started talking about all these different tumours, like in the lungs, the stomach, the spine, outside the kidneys. He started saying things like, you should probably take a break and spend more time with your family and so forth. I asked him, how long do you think I've got left? And he said two or three years but I can tell in his voice that he probably thought it was less. He then got a second opinion from an oncologist who discovered his kidney cancer was mutating more like lung cancer, which led to an overhaul of his treatment. That started shrinking his tumours by upwards of 90%, and with that reduction, he's added that he'll now have to undergo surgery to remove the remaining tumours. The hope is that no further cancer activity will occur 
it hasn't stopped him working because he'll be seen later this year in the aforementioned Expendables 4 and Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom in December. We, we wish him best health. We hope he gets through this. He's one of those action stars that during the 80s always played like the dumb kind of villains. But when you see him in interviews, he's so intelligent. He's so he's sharp. He's a very erudite human being. He's incredibly well-read and, and yeah. incredibly well-educated. And... So I've always had a lot of love for Dolph Lundgren. I've always gravitated around, like even his most schlocky of performances through the years. I've kind of enjoyed everything that he's done. Here's hoping he gets through all this and we get to see him on screen more and more in the coming years. And that, folks, that's the news. So if you're enjoying this particular episode, and there's no reason why you shouldn't, because I'm enjoying it, Andy. <laughs> I'm always enjoying it. I mean, I'm in a hyper mood today, but yeah, it's it's so much fun. And we know that enjoyment is infectious, and that infection means you need to subscribe. And I don't know where I was going with this link, but I'm going to keep going. <laughs> you need to subscribe right to the Phil to the end. podcast. <laughs> I'll see it through. All you've got to do is head over to your favourite podcast platform and search for the film file come on join us join us over here in happy land where we talk positively about films and also leave us a like and get in touch why not get in touch why not get in touch you can contact us on all the social media platforms you can reply to our question of the week through spotify by answering the question when it pops up underneath the feed there or you can email us with any thoughts, suggestions, deep dives that you want us to add to our ever-expanding list, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your thoughts on films or thoughts on the show. So let's talk about this week's deep dive. Dive, dive, dive. This week we're going to be talking about the Danny Boyle-directed sci-fi film written by Alex Garland, came out in 2007, has a huge cast that includes Killian Murphy, Chris Evans, Rose Byrne, Michelle Yeo, Cliff Curtis, Benedict Wong, and Mark Strong. And that film is Sunshine. Our sun is dying. Mankind faces extinction. 16 months ago, I, Robert Kappa, and a crew of seven left Earth frozen in a solar winter. Our mission, reignite the sun before it's too late. Welcome to Icarus 2. So this 2007 sci-fi film is about a team of astronauts assigned the huge responsibility of saving the Earth by saving our sun. But things take a dramatic and darker turn when an accident occurs and the lives of each of the crew members are endangered. There was a slew of sci-fi movies around the mid-2000 mark, like I'd, I'd even put in 28 Days Later, mm. Pandorum and Moon, that had a similar kind of feel. And this was Danny Boyle's entrance into sci-fi. Now, he had been courted for an awful long time. And at one point, from what I'd heard, had signed on to direct Alien 3. But this was a film that cited Boyle's influences as being a bit of a cinephile because you could say he takes elements of Kubrick's 2001, uh, the film Solaris, uh, and even Ridley Scott's Alien. It's an interesting film that sadly, despite positive reviews, was a box office bomb. Andy, I think you and I share a bit of love for Sunshine. Yeah, um, I saw this on the big screen when it first came out. Looked great. I think we probably saw this together when yeah, it came out. I think this, we did. Was, this was one of our screenings that we went to. 
and we both loved it at the time. It, you know, visually superb. A cast who were kind of a B-list cast at the time that you now look at now and go, this is stacked. This is absolutely stacked. If you made this film now with this cast, it would get a lot more attention because Chris Evans, Benedict Wong, Michelle Yeoh, Hiroyoku Sonada, Rose Byrne, Cliff Curtis. You know, Killian Murphy was the top billing at the time against those names. Yeah, I mean, Chris Evans was just off the back of... Fantastic Four. Uh, Fantastic Four and, and had done, done losers, but he wasn't considered at that point uh, a leading man. I just remember being impressed with everything about it. The the complex story that you say that like, you know, it's the center restart the sun and you go, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. But Boyle smartly got scientists involved, including NASA scientists to talk about the feasibility and him and Garland worked closely with like, you know, astrophysicists, etc., to work out what could be feasible in a sci-fi concept to be believable. Brian Cox was on set to help coach the crew That's and right. cast throughout on the scientific aspects of it to make it as real and believable as possible, whilst allowing for some deviation from from reality in order to tell a good story at the same time. So this whole idea that, you know, rather than global warming, the sun is cooling down and it needs to have a jump start had a scientific basis for them to throw into it. And it looks great. The model design for the ship, it's very reminiscent of Discovery 1, only with like a giant sun shield at the front instead. It's, you know, it's that classic, like you say, 2001 influence. And the interior, it's very much the alien influence. It's the, it's the Ridley yeah. Scott kind of approach. Or even, I know that he referenced the things like Event Horizon also inspired his look of the interior of the vessels. And you can see that because um, there's there's a few similarities that you could make up various plot points in this to Event Horizon. You've got the isolation of as astronaut crew in like on a scientific mission in deep space and how that affects them personally. You've got conflicts of faith more or less in there. You've got horror in the last act. It's got a good meld of things and I feel that it balances well. And then after it came out at the cinema, it came out on home release. I picked it up on DVD, watched it once and I've never watched it again. And so watching it this week was refreshingly eye-opening because there was a lot that I'd forgotten about this film. I was, interestingly enough, I was with Danny Boyle uh, having dinner with him the night that the money came through and they had taken this project to 20th Century Fox. Uh, and Fox decided a no because they thought it had similarities to their own 2002 remake Solaris, which was a... a um, an interesting and, and I think very smart film, but that performed dismally at the box office for the studio. Uh, and so Boyle was looking at funding from China and that had a, a bit of an influence on, on casting and the way that the film went on it. This idea of an American and Chinese space program would, would one day be developed. And that played a big part of uh, selling the film. I like the film. Uh, a bit like you, I saw it back in the day, uh, saw it a, a, a year or so later, but didn't return to it. Now, it is a good film. Is it one of Danny Boyle's best films? No, it's not. It did mean that Danny Boyle could basically cover successfully any kind of of genre. And we've seen mm. that across all of his work. It has a Danny Boyle style to it. And I think especially with some of the uh, later moments when the film becomes um, quite... It goes into 2001 territory a little bit. Uh, it does switch into a sort of odd kind of slasher movie. And then it gets, it fulfills that kind of requisite of becoming intelligent and becoming a much more 
classic ethereal sci-fi movie in 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 keeping with uh 2001. Uh, there are elements and i think there are always elements in in alex garland's scripts of where you can see his influences I, I think you do get a bit of silent running in there i think you get a bit of alien in there you even i could say other than 2001 a little bit of dark star in there mm. but I, I do think it's it's an interesting film and i think it, it shows that that boyle can step into all these different genres uh, i know that in order to prepare for the shooting Boyle had the cast pretty much going method. He wanted to get the whole feeling of a group of people who've been together for 16 months and so have got under each other's skins, but also know when to work well as a team. And so he put them together for an extended period of time to put them into that situation. So they got they got the times that like you'd grate on something, which I think works for particularly Killian Murphy and Chris Everton's characters who come to clashes a couple of times in the film, but at the same time have respect for each other's abilities and what their necessity is to the mission that they're on. And it's great to see how well they work together and against each other at the same time. Beautiful personalities like clashing, but it for the positive reasons, because they're all there to save the earth. Yeah. And whilst whilst they annoy each other, they realize that they have to put up with each other. Cliff Curtis's character, who's becomes obsessed with the sun, to such a degree that he starts like testing to see the limits of like his skin against the heat shields by lowering the heat shields to have more direct sunlight. And he's fascinated with the idea of being able to stir into the sun and seeing what lives within it without any like, visors or anything on. And you feel at the start of the film that that's going to lead to him turning against the rest of the crew uh, on some strange spiritual mission. And that's why I think that the final act when they found the old Icarus and found what happened to that. I think that when it turns to a slasher, and I know some critics at the time hated the fact that after that point it became like a slasher movie, but I think it's smart in that it, it leads you to expect that one character's going to do this, but then throws a different stance doing exactly the same thing, but with a different character. And it yeah. works for me. It plays it well. Uh, Curtis is marvellous in it. At the time, I remember seeing Cliff Curtis in a few things at the time. Yeah, Training Day was was the one that springs to mind for me. And of course, uh, Whale Rider. Yeah. And he was another one whose name being on the poster for this made me go, oh, Killian Murphy and Cliff Curtis. Yeah, I'm in. And so, you know, Chris Evans and all that didn't really resonate with me until I'd watched this film. From this film onwards, it was like, that Chris Evans is pretty damn good. Benedict Wong, who we now absolutely adore. Everyone loves Benedict Wong yeah. now. But he was just very small parts back then. And he's marvellous in this. Everyone is marvellous in it because Danny Boyle knows how to get the best out of each member of cast that he puts in. He knows how to really engage with them and really make them, make even the most minor of role shine and stand out. It's a visually beautiful film, but it's audibly beautiful as well. The film score was crafted by John Murphy working alongside, well, techno artists Underworld who you'll remember had the big hit born slippy thanks to a train spotting yeah i mean i th i think it's i think it's a good film i think it works on lots and lots of different levels it does have a sense of being over familiar as i said there are elements i've seen before in films like silent running and it allows itself to become ambitious and it does go into a sort of 2001-esque sense of 
that we are just a small part in a huge universe and yeah. um no matter how far we go into space it's all about the, the who we are as humanity so i think it works on different levels i saw it the second time and was not as overwhelmed as i did when i saw it originally i think it works better on the big screen because i think the yeah. spectacle plays out but i do think it's an interesting film that i can to some extent see why it didn't find its its audience and i think it's also interesting for those who not seen it and discovered it for the first time i can see how it can win over a, a brand new audience it's a film that tackles human nature it tackles the follies and sins of the the cultures that we live in the attempts at redemption for mankind it tackles devout faith in a higher presence here represented by the sun that can lead good men to do terrible things in the name of faith and the final act is a switch to that which also serves to show that a well-placed faith can be positive and it push forward mankind in a positive way. The final moments when it becomes very 2001 trippy is the space-time distortions taking place as they're getting closer to the gravity well of the sun is a beautiful sequence and leads to that marvellous moment of Killian Murphy reaching to touch the surface of the sun as everything slowed down around him. Visually superb and like you said, on the big screen worked even better. It is something that is diminished somewhat on the small screen, but because I'd seen it on the big screen, I could still embrace and appreciate everything that was going on. I love Alex Garland's scripts. I don't think Alex Garland has delivered any screenplay that has resulted in a film that's made me go, well, that was a bad idea. Um, he's always a great ideas man. He always does very challenging scripts. He always does very woven and complex ones. Sometimes he can overdo it and put too many things in. But he's got a he's got a nice way of making it feel that it's not overdone. When he worked with Boyle, I think he delivered some of his finest work. If you want to see Sunshine, you can do so by it's on the the old Disney Plus. Oh, that's good to know. So everyone can uh, be introduced to this Danny Boyle classic. It also regularly drops on other services, so feel free to check out and find out where you can find it. But it's worth picking up on the Blu-ray as well because it's a, such a beautiful film. You want to see it in the best definition that you can. So pick it up worth exploring great film definitely want to check out we'll be back next week with another deep dive and now it's time for this week's reviews we've got a film that we've both seen andy has done his usual majestic turn <laughs> of watching basically everything that's landed this week but andy shall we kick off with a film we can both talk about yes that will be the apple plus documentary that landed this week and is also on a limited cinema release over the next few weeks so check your local listings still a michael j fox movie the story of me take two three two here we go ready and action wait a minute doc uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a delorean what did it mean to be still i wouldn't know i was ever still that's him that's our star. I want this job. I can do it. Whatever the exception is, I can fix it. I can be older. I can be taller. I can be anything. So this is the story of Michael J. Fox, of course, the star of Back to the Future, Teen Wolf, Casualties of War, and then later in TV with Spin City. He started out in Family Ties, in which, interestingly enough, he was a supporting character, but due to his charisma, threw him into the limelight of being a leading actor. And this reflects his life and his career in 
television and films, and then how the earth-shattering diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, though while he was still in his early 20s, changed his life. Now, Michael J. Fox, as you know, has never been able to keep still. He has this uh, unique restlessness that you saw across all of his films. He is one, even throughout this film, one of those people on film who just has so much charisma. And this documentary talks about, ironically, for somebody who cannot keep still due to his uh, his diagnosis, and it's about his, his inner calm, basically. I thought it was a beautiful film, Andy. I thought it was moving and beautiful. Yeah, it's one of them that, even when I've been saying to people at work this week, oh, you need to check this out, and they're like, oh, is it upsetting? It's like, actually, no. It can't help but fill no. you with joy to realise that despite what he's gone through and the pain that he's permanently in with his condition, he's so optimistic and just still grabbing every moment of life that he can. He doesn't want to slow down. I mean, there's a great line from in and there, which is something along the lines of, you know, when I was young, I would never be still. Now I can't be still. Yeah. It's as it tells his life and he's, he's talking back through like, you know, his early start into acting, what got him into it, his first successes, that he can't help but be reminded of what it was about Michael J. Fox that we all fell in love with back in the 80s and why he became a big name. He's just so darned likable. And then when he reveals that, because it, it opens with the, a scene which is representing when he first was first realised he'd got Parkinson's or something was wrong. And it's him waking up drunk in a hotel room after a night out with Woody Harrelson. And he put his hand to his face, thought that a moth was flapping against it. And when he pull, pulled his hand away, he realised it's actually his finger that is out of control and doesn't feel like his finger anymore. And that's when he got diagnosed. But we weren't told that he had Parkinson's until at least a decade later. And neither was anyone that he worked with. And it's as he goes through talking about how he kept it secret and the things that he did, that it makes you reflect on a lot of the films that he did and real and the TV shows and realize that something that you thought were mannerisms that he'd given to characters, like on Spin City, he always came into rooms like looking at his watch and like twitching his watch back down his sleeve. And that was one of his ways of coping that he, he could feel a twitch coming on and he keeps keeps his hands busy. Yeah. He'd always have props in his hands. And there's clips from some of the, the shows and films that he did after he's revealed this that make you go, oh, yeah, I'd not noticed that. And it makes me want to go back and revisit all of his career again to see how he worked through it all. And it's smart in the way that it shows the parts of his past where it's got old footage from TV shows yeah. that they can throw in. They do that. But where it's not got footage for parts of his life, they've cleverly used elements for, they've either got like body doubles for like, like from the rear, etc. But they've used clips from the films, but then re-put them into the context of his real life. So the opening shot is him waking up in that hotel bed when he's got the twitching finger. And it uses a clip from Back to the Future in order to have him waking up on the bed, but he's put into this hotel room. And it looks seamless. It looks like it's actually footage from the time. It's beautifully designed throughout. You can't help but just like believe that what you're watching is an actual shot documentary from that time working through all of his life. I thought that it was heartbreaking and yet wonderfully funny. Mm. Uh, and I think what I mean, he is just a charming individual. And there were moments of it, which was that sort of self-deprecating gag is when he's talking he's he's talking about his disease and uh in one particular scene and he but he, he he makes a joke out of it and i yeah. think that's you you just felt that you knew him by the end and yeah. it, it 
confirmed that he just comes across as a an interesting and a nice guy who's, who's spent his later years drawing awareness to this this sort of terrible disease and that he is one of the most highly recognized uh, celebrities out there that, that suffered from this and i just thought man fox is just i'd just love to spend even more hours with him yeah he's just a treasure he doesn't want to spend his life feeling sad and miserable about everything he wants to embrace it and a lot of that comes from and you get this throughout the whole documentary his family tracy pollen who he married in 1988 i believe yeah they've been together since family ties she's the love of his life she's there for him and she never panders to him she always like stands by him and pushes him and drives him and his wonderful children none of them pity him none of them go oh my dad's suffering it's just their dad but he doesn't ask for pity does he at any point and that's again which is makes him so relatable it's a wonderful documentary thoroughly recommended to everyone totally agree and if you want to see still a michael j fox movie then you can find that on apple plus and trust us two hours of your life that you think you've shared with somebody who deserves to be considered one of the greats andy what else have you got as we said last week, the two films that were coming out at the cinema had no appeal to me. There was Love Again and there was Book Club 2, Electric Boogaloo or whatever it's called, <laughs> I don't know. So I said I'll be swinging by to see what had landed recently on streaming. The two that I'm going to pick out this week are, and I'll start off with a classic Western, only one with Nicolas Cage, and that's The Old Way. Tell me the names of the men who did this. As long as that little girl is alive, there's no room for vengeance. You're protecting a killer from another killer. Can you teach me how to shoot? Both of you put your hands behind your back. Now, Briggs. Fish that, Rossi. My father wants you, gun. I'll blow her brains all over this valley. You ain't scared of nothing. Nicholas Cage plays the role of Colton Briggs, a cold-hearted member of an extrajudicial posse in 1878 Montana. After drawing out a notorious bandit by threatening his brother, Briggs ends it by killing the brother in front of his son. Twenty years later, Briggs is a changed man. He settled down on a farmstead with his wife and daughter. However, as you'd pretty much predict if you'd ever seen any Western film, the sins of the past come back to haunt him as the youngster who saw his family killed two decades earlier comes seeking revenge. This is pretty predictable territory throughout. It plays every trope of the genre and leaves no surprises to uncover. And it all feels very traditional in look, sometimes overbright and cheap looking, which in this era when most Western films are dark and gritty would have been quite refreshing had the story matter not actually called for dark and gritty. This is a tale of dark revenge and brutal retribution. It shouldn't look like Back to the Future Part 3. So the story is uninspired and the direction from Brett Donahue is lacklustre, although it is much better than his 2018 Bruce Willis starring Acts of Violence. But I did get some enjoyment from it, and primarily that is down to the central performances from Nicolas Cage and Ryan Keira Armstrong as Colton and his daughter. Cage plays cold and quiet, a character whose past makes it difficult for him to show emotion even to those who he loves. And Armstrong, as his daughter, is emotionally withdrawn, showing echoes of the person Colton was at her age, and he hopes to prevent her following his path. The interactions between the two hold the film together, and they give something personal to latch onto, 
in amongst the otherwise bland production. The Old Way is nothing exciting, and there's plenty of much better films to watch out there. But as a 95-minute piece of escapist nonsense, particularly if you're a fan of westerns, it does the trick. Your last film for review is... Landed on Netflix, the J-Lo action thriller, The Mother. Where's my baby? You wasted FBI time trying to cut a deal for yourself, and seven agents were killed. This conversation now takes place on our terms. Adrian Lavelle and Hector Alvarez are still out there. You and I both know the only way you protect that child is to disappear. And if I don't? They'll find you. Both of you. You just gonna vanish? You put it with good people. Keep her safe. If there's trouble, let me know. You must have known I'd find her. Whilst brokering a deal with the FBI after she fell pregnant, an arms dealer, Jennifer Lopez, is attacked and the life of her unborn baby is put at risk when one of the dealers she is giving evidence against tries to kill her. Recovering in hospital, she's told that the child lived but will be placed into care for protection. Waiving parental rights, she asks only to be given a photo of the child every birthday before she goes into isolation in Alaska. However, 12 years pass and the long-lost daughter appears to be the target of a gang linked to her past and the mother must come out of hiding to protect her. Generic plot lines are pretty much the staple of Netflix action films these days, and this one offers no real twists and turns that we've not seen before. But whilst the plotting and action is cliche-riddled, it's salvaged somewhat by Lopez as the mother, who delivers not only on the emotional aspect, but certainly on the action side. Support cast around her are adequate, albeit simply playing generic archetypes, with Gail Garcia Bernal and Joseph Fiennes feeling kind of lost in the mix, Two normally great actors who are reduced to simple template bad guys seems like such a waste. Lucy Piaz, as Lopez's daughter Zoe, is fine, but there never seems to be any genuine emotional connection at any point, even if the film tries to convince you that there is. As well as the central role lifting this film up, some of the action choices serve it well. Whilst it churns out pretty much the tropes we would expect, there are some nice touches in camera work that make the old feel fresh at times, and it even manages to use drone cams in a way that didn't feel intrusive to the film, but actually played an old cliche moment from a new perspective. But overall, this is just a typical Netflix action film, which is overlong at just under two hours for the slight story that it has, and yet still fails to convey any passage of time within the framework of the plot. A comment late on in the film suggests months-long time frame, but it never feels like it's more than a couple of days. It's worth a watch if there's nothing else to view, if only to see J-Lo in action mode, which is an absolute treat. That's it for this week's reviews. Andy, what's coming up over the next week? Is there much in light of the big releases? Probably not for you, because <laughs> I, I don't think you'll be joining me for Fast X. <laughs> oh, oh, well, sorry. <laughs> I won't know where to start. It would be like coming into a series when I'm, uh, I know I've missed 20 episodes. Yeah, and you, you kind of need to know like 400 characters by this point in the franchise. There's also Bo is Afraid, which is getting very mixed reviews, and it's polar opposite reviews. There's no middle ground on the, on the criticisms out there. You either love this film or hate it, so it is top of my list to watch this week, but it's three hours of my life that I'll never get back if I don't like it. Find out how that goes next week. <laughs> <laughs> and not for me, but I get the appeal for it. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. 
the classic Judy Bloom novel has an adaptation hitting the cinemas this week. Over on Now TV and Sky, if you really want to suffer, you can watch Halloween Ends. If you oh, want you to, can't. If, if you want to enjoy <laughs> yourself to. instead, Confess Fletchlands. Oh, I've been looking forward to that as I, I just went and listened to the Audible version. Netflix, these are never any good, but I always go to them because I've got a childhood love of the characters. Asterix and Obelix, The Middle Kingdom, lands on Netflix this week, and I'm watching it. Um, over on Amazon, Maybe I Do, which stars Diane Keaton and Richard Gere. Could be worth watching just for the names alone. Disney Plus, spoke about it earlier. White Men Can't Jump lands this week. And that's not that's about it for the roundup, but that's quite a good diverse mix of films across cinemas and streaming. You could say there is there is something there for everybody there. Yeah, it's a it's a good balanced week. That's us done. Uh, it's flown by this week, and we can't just go without giving you our neat things. And our neat things are stuff that we've enjoyed, watched, uh, ate, you name it. As long as we've enjoyed it, we're going to tell you about it. Andy, what's your neat thing? Now, you remember that last week I said I was putting me Audible on hold so they can catch up on things that I've had on the back burner for a while. And so I tapped into And I think you brought this as a neat thing ages ago. Oh, OK. And it's took me till this week to jump onto it. And that's Brett Goldstein's Films to be Buried with podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Now, there's over 200 episodes now to work through. So it's one of them that was like, where do I start? Do I go back to episode one and start from there? Or do I just jump in on the more recent? I decided to cherry pick and pick out ones with names of people that he's talking to that I more gravitate towards. And so I started with the Edgar Wright episodes because um, he's done three with Edgar Wright now. The first one, which, one, which was a, a two-parter. And then his more recent resurrection one where he's brought him back and brought him back from the dead. <laughs> and... Boy, they are such a joy. I've listened to the Edgar Wright ones. I've listened to the Mark Commode ones. I've listened to the Patton Oswald ones. I've got the next lot lined up, ready to work through. So much fun. Brett Goldstein. I, I, want, I want to be on that show now. I want to answer <laughs> his be. questions. We could both be on. Should we write to him? We need to write to him and just say, look, we're not the big celebrities like you normally have, but we would love to sit and talk films with you, mate. And also listen to Edgar Wright. And this is where I got like all the trivia uh, for I've I've got a lot of trivia for Edgar Wright. Edgar Wright has never seen Little Mermaid. Oh, uh, like me, because he mentioned it on his Resurrection episode because he was talking about films that there's the question of like what films do you feel that you should have seen that you've never seen, and he reeled off a load of them because he went through all the top film lists from like BFI and like the letterbox lists, etc. And there's a load of them that I was like, I've not seen that. I've not seen that. He's not seen the same films I've not seen. And I feel that that's made me achieve something in life that I've, I'm the same as Edgar Wright. I love Edgar Wright. Every time that he posts something, I'm like, yeah, I get that. <laughs> when he included Eloise in Last Night in Soho, and he said, like, it's a song that he's always loved. I was like, I know my daughter that because of that very same song. I think that we're actually the same person. I am actually Edgar Wright. Oh, okay. But. I love Brett Goldstein's film to be buried with. Why do I love it? Because he's doing what we do with our question of the week, but he does it to celebrities over the episode. He has the set questions and the whole concept of you've died and you're going to be buried with one DVD, but we're going to ask you some questions about why you love films beforehand. It gets them to talk and explore all the things that film means to you. And, you can relate to it. As film fans ourselves, you can relate to everything that they say, even if you don't agree with the film that they're choosing. You can understand why they've got the love for it. I also love the fact that he gets them to describe how they've died, and they are hilarious what some <laughs> of them come out with. Patton Oswalt's one had me laughing out loud on the bus. This is in danger of getting me kicked off buses for being a madman. 
because I am chuckling constantly and then occasional bursts of like actual laugh out louds where you realize what it is and try to disguise it as a cough before anyone thinks you're a nutter. It's a great show. It's all on Spotify. There's also the Patreon that he does, which I'm very, very tempted to subscribe to so we can get the bonus content, the extra 20 minute interviews, the secrets that they come out with. Anyone who's not listened to it, Brett Goldstein's films to be buried with. Where did Brett Goldstein come from? Because I mean, Ted Lasso. Apparently he's been around for ages, but we've just yeah. not noticed him. And now he's just suddenly a big thing. And I'm glad because if he hadn't been a big thing through Ted Lasso, we'd have never got this show. Excellent. And this is a neat thing. My neat thing is a collected graphic novel version that, of course, is, is if you want to read, especially limited series, is probably the best way. You don't have to wait around per month. And that is Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow oh, by yeah. Tom King. Oh, man. That's right up it? my alley. I love it. Oh, that's good. Well, we can talk about it together because it's it's uh, it kind of hit me because I'd heard that's what James Gunn was adapting for the Supergirl movie. And I'm a big fan of Tom King. I, and this should be on my list of neat things. I just read his Sheriff of Babylon, a kind of autobiographical take on his uh, when he was working for the CIA when he was in Iraq. And so I'm kind of interested in Tom King. I, I do have some faults with him. I think he has a tendency to overwrite, but I do think he does interesting takes on characters. I was first drawn to his work with his take on Vision for Marvel. Uh, he's Mr. Miracle for DC. Uh, recently, I read his Adam Strange run, and, as, and they said the aforementioned Sheriff of Babylon. But I wasn't aware of this one. I didn't know it had landed. This is Supergirl, as we've never seen her mm. before. And the story is through the eyes of a character, Ruthie. And it basically is an exploration into what it means to be Supergirl, really. Yeah. She's not in the shadow of her more famous cousin. It's kind of an emotional take a very different take on Kara Zor-El. So Ruthie's world is turned upside down when a villain slaughters her father in cold blood. And she's angry and she's vengeful and Ruthie sets on, on the road to vengeance and she meets up a, a washed up Supergirl who is drinking her sorrows away on this particular planet because there is a, a red sun. So if you know the kind mm. of Krypton stories and they go on this journey together Principally because Crypto, Kara's beloved dog, is is poisoned and they have to track down the uh, assailant. But it becomes something more than that. It's kind of a take on, I thought True Grit, mm. I also thought High Noon. It reminded me in some areas of Lone Wolf and Cub, yeah. uh, and even a little bit of Logan. It's, it's practically a, the same setup as True Grit. But that doesn't worry me. That That's not a problem because it makes up for that unoriginality because of the characters and, the, and Tom King exploring the cyclical nature of, of violence and, and the quest for revenge. But putting Supergirl in a way that we've never seen her before in the center of this as somebody who's got a unique commentary on the way that her life has turned out. Uh, it's it's a really enjoyable read, beautifully illustrated, and just makes me think that this is an interesting movie to introduce Supergirl to the big screen in because it shows her in a way that we've never seen this character before. Yeah. And, and upon hearing Gunn's announcements, if you were expecting an origin story for Supergirl, you don't have to because if you everything you want to know about the character will is in this book and will be hopefully 
in this film. Uh, it's a great read, highly recommended. Highly recommend any of Tom King's stuff, but this has got an, an interesting take on a beloved character and told in a way that we have never seen this character before. It's a very smart jumping on point because... She's almost a secondary character all the way through. Yeah. I've got a deep the DC app so I can explore all the comics history, but there's a lot of things that I'm like, where's my jumping on point? Where can I jump in and not feel that I've missed stuff? And because this is kind of like a retelling of like the purpose of Supergirl, she, she was sent to Earth to protect a baby boy that by the time she got to Earth was already a grown-up man and she had no purpose. And this yeah. is her finding what her purpose and responsibility is, whilst also being a 21-year-old who just wants to get drunk. Yeah, yeah. There's, she uses a lot of profanity, even though it's it's <laughs> it's uh, it's edited out in the classic comics way. Everything in the first issue sets out the rules for what, how she got powers. It explains what you need to know. So you don't feel that you've missed any backstory. I've enjoyed like various iterations of Supergirl throughout the years. I thought that when they did the uh, rebirth after the new 52, they brought a lightness back to it. But this has been my favorite retelling and like re re-examining of what Supergirl is that there's been to date. Marvelous scripting and the artwork's beautiful and anything that can get away with putting crypto in there and not make it feel ridiculous works for me. Oh, yeah, the, I I love this this eight issue series. It was yeah. when I read it. Highly, highly recommended. And that's my neat thing. And that is the end of this week's show. Andy, any big plans for the week? Uh, you've got a couple of days off, haven't you? Yes, I've got a few days off over this next week. Uh, I'm going to take some time to chill out, and then it's preparing for next week when uh, I get to see Def Leppard. I'll be there at the Legnall show. So looking forward to that one. Yeah, that'll be a nice intimate gig. Yeah, uh, nice yeah. intimate gig for a huge huge band mm. it's interesting because when i was on tour we went to japan and the venues there were, were quite intimate it was a very 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 different take it was a very stripped down show but an interesting way of uh of seeing a big band so from that i'm just going to be watching various tv shows and films as i normally do because i'm so committed to this show that i watch all this stuff just to talk to you guys <laughs> oh bless you <laughs> we'll be back again with another film file take care and in the meantime we have an excess of manliness breaking out in the comm center. Although I could have gone into a key order advert at that point in time, because that normally came straight yeah, after that advert. You should see if there's like an in piece of Indian music we can use. <laughs> Lip smacking, thirst quenching, ace tasting, motivating, good buzzing, cool talking, high walking, fast living, ever giving, cool fizzing. Pepsi. <laughs> we need to do that as an intro. <laughs> we just Instead, change it pe to film Pepsi file. go film file. Poor old. Oh, wow, your name is great. Anom. Anom nom nomaly. It's just got a good user. <laughs> anom nom nomaly. Hey, poor old anom nom anom nom. Poor old anom <laughs> nom nomaly. <laughs> wow, then what a username. Anom nom nomaly. Love it. You just get points for giving it a go. You do know that. The, the Swedish judge have just given you uh, 12 points. I've just been able to yes. remember how to pronounce it. But this is the reason why I will. Yeah, we're going to say, we're going to talk about your big butt. My now, big butt. It, I cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for following up on my, uh, uh, I, you know, I teed it up for you. You just knocked it down the fence. Um, but this week's question is, no idea. What is the question for next week? <laughs>
yeah, what is what is next week? If you could set a question for the next couple of weeks, what would those questions be? <laughs> There's kinds uh, of questions that I'd love to use, but um, it wouldn't be very tasteful. <laughs> what fil what films um, have you had a, an unexpected boner through when it wasn't even an erotic scene? <laughs> are, are they getting together? Are they got a Tang Kong? <laughs> Multiplied yeah, them together. Kong. We ended up with Kong, Kongzillas. <laughs> I, I'm not going to pass any judgment. Uh, interracial species dating. Do you do Kongzilla so, or do you do Gong? <laughs> uh, gong. I, I like Gong. We'll go with gong. Have children that we found a name for them. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I say book club. I'm just checking. It was book club. <laughs> we did that joke last week. <laughs> I know it's still funny. <laughs>